Okay, um, I just wanted to say how thankful I am that I got a chance to come up here and speak three times. It's been fun. When they first asked me to do it, I was horrified, but actually it's been really fun and I've learned a lot. Um, so I just want to thank everybody that still keeps coming and uh, thank God for all the many blessings that we have. I didn't realize... Well, I have realized, I mean, this is something that I've realized, but I didn't realize to the extent of how much everybody in here is so special to me and so special as a church. I think we have a really unique thing here. Um, It's been kind of fun because Justin and I work together, uh, Justin Chewy and I, we work together. My office is probably only about maybe 40 feet from his classroom. And last Sunday after he preached, which he, he spoke such a good, it was so good last week. And when he came in on Monday morning, I'm like, you know, it was just kind of fun to meet with Justin and say, man, that was such a good job you did, Justin. And we were talking in my office and then people were joining in the office as we were talking. And it's just been just a real good camaraderie and um, something that I didn't necessarily expect. Not that I wasn't. I was expecting the opposite. It was just a pleasant um, benefit. So this morning when I was thinking about, I wasn't just thinking about what I was going to speak about this morning. I was, I was prepared. But I was thinking about um, the, what I was going to speak about today. And I, real, I got this image of uh, just a, well, let's see, how do I set this up? I got this image where of Justin and I over a good night. I'll start there. And Justin and I both work for a school that has 720 kids. So it's a lot of kids. We have anybody from any kid from uh, preschool all the way up to eighth grade. So it's also complex because we have these monsters that are like six foot tall walking amongst the little itty bitty guys that are in, in preschool. And it's in a community that not necessarily you would think that we do well as a school because our scores are high. But we're also a school that has some some social needs and we we never get mentioned as those schools that have social needs but we're from a school where some of the situations that we have in our school are complex and when i look at when i was standing there monday with justin in my office i thought how cool it is that both justin and i get to to work together in the same area because it almost seems like the vision that i had today and that is when you connect the two of us and then you connect the church that we have here, we're small. Both Justin and I are probably the one that beliefs are similar in the school that I work with amongst a big community. And then we have this small community here at New Day that is special, I think. And we're amongst a big community in the county and city of Pueblo. And what I saw this morning was just a small drop dropping in a still pool. And you guys have seen that picture where you see the small drop coming in the, sm- the still pool. And it's a gentle um, reaction. So when the drip goes in, you see the ripples just gently going out. It's not a violent response to that drop, but it's a gentle nudging of those ripples going out. And I felt that is kind of... I think where we are today, where we're a small church, but we have this itty-bitty drop that's going to drop in the city and county of Pueblo 
that's going to cause this just really slow ripple that's going to be gentle and loving, and it's going to expand throughout that area. And it was kind of kind of a neat visual. One thing I want to encourage you guys is when you do, I don't know if you guys prayer, do prayer journals, um, but I want to encourage you to write some of the things down that you get from God. I have the best intentions when it comes to journaling. I'm a book hoarder. I like to hoard books, and I'm a pen snob. I like nice pens. So I'll buy these nice journals and this really nice, smooth pen, and I've got all these great plans that I'm going to write these amazing things in a journal. So I'll sit down, I'll write a couple pages, and then I'll shut the book, and then a week later I'm horrified because I'll open up this journal, and it looks like something I've seen from a fifth grader at school in their journal. You know, some of the things I think about, it's like, what? So then I'm, I'm mortified, and then you don't know what to do with those two pages. Do you rip them out? But then if you rip them out, that's kind of like ripping a piece of you out and ripping it up and throwing away. That just seems wrong. But you don't want to leave it in the journal because, God forbid, that gets put in the yard sale and someone reads your thoughts, especially the names that you may have put in there. So journaling to me is kind of awkward still. But we got... Uh, two years ago, right after I finished my master's degree, I thought I wanted to stay and study, and I, I really felt like I needed to see the difference between Saul and David. So I started studying this, and I put it in my computer in the OneNote because I thought it would get me away from that weird journal relationship I have. So I put it in my OneNote, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with OneNote on the computer, but you've got all these tabs on top. And over the last three months, I've been reviewing the the study, and I've been looking at the tabs on top and going through the study that I did two years ago. What I noticed this last week is I had forgotten there's these little tabs on the side where you can add more notes to your study. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I forgot about those. I started clicking on those, and I was absolutely amazed at what I was seeing. It was during that same time when... Shelley was doing the class on when you pray, just journal it out. Don't think about what you're doing. Just write it down and and journal it out. And it was during that time that I was doing this. And I was reading what I was getting in prayer, and it had everything to do about what I'm talking this last two months. And it was uh, how I was feeling at the time, what I thought God was talking to me about. And I've always been really hesitant to say, God spoke to me or the Holy Spirit spoke to me because I'm not too sure if that's me or the Holy Spirit in some some senses. I don't hear I'm not like one that hears a different voice in some ways. But in my notes, I put God says, which is unusual for me to put that. But in there, it says God says that um, I will fill your desire to connect with other people. I will teach you how to be vulnerable. I will teach you more about shame. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that was two years ago. And why that meant so much to me was this last fall for the district, we had to go to a workshop where they taught us about social justice. And in that workshop, they showed us a video of Brene Brown, who is a professor at University of Denver. She's a researcher into vulnerability and shame. And I saw the TED Talks. And it really resonated with me. So I went out and bought her books. I read her books. And I thought, this is amazing. This is really speaking to me. And what she speaks about is shame, vulnerability, and connectedness. 
So when you look at your prayer journal and you see that that was two years ago that you had totally forgotten about, and then you come back two years later and you see that God has, that you've been on the same path, but it took two years, it it really is a, uh, it was a faith-building thing for me. I, um, about two, well, probably about, when I look at some of the churches that I've been to in the past, um, I've always been a little bit socially awkward. Uh, I've had a, a little bit of some social anxiety, and I hide it pretty well because I can compartmentalize myself to where I'm at work. If I have a job to do, I can do that job. So as a teacher, I don't show that I have social anxiety because my purpose is defined. So when I walk into the classroom, I have this defined purpose. I'm the teacher. I can run the show. I know I have control. If I go into a party, if I go into some kind of social setting, I don't have a defined role and I'm not in control. So that anxiety builds up into me and and I want to run. I want to wilt when I'm in a social setting and I feel socially awkward. I'm constantly judging what I'm going to say before I say it. Um, considering my acts, and I hated that part about myself. I couldn't stand it because I wanted to be comfortable in a social setting. I wanted to be able to be like those persons that walk in a room and just are. I wanted to be authentic, though. I didn't want to be a practice person that walked in the room and practiced bubbling that doesn't really fit with me because I'm not necessarily a bubbly person. I'm not one of those that come in and... Well, you know what I'm talking about. I'm just not one of those. I didn't want to be practiced. I wanted to be authentic. And when I was looking at my prayer journal, that was the struggle I was dealing with two years ago. I was praying, God, I just want to connect. I don't feel like I connect with others in a healthy way. I feel like I don't know how to do that. And it's interesting because that was two years ago. So when you look back on it, necessarily the journey is longer than the destination. And not to say that I've arrived there, but I definitely have seen a milestone of, of confirmation that the journey that I'm on is the journey that God's leading me to. Amen. So it's been exciting. I started looking at why people don't connect. And I think, I mean, one thing we know is we are a society, we are a people that, that need to connect. That's what's in our, our systems in our lives. We want to be someone that connects with others. I went to a church a while back, and this church had social events. And this is when my daughter was very young, so I was trapped at home basically with all my free time. It was time for me to be home, be there for my daughter. I was learning how to be a new mother I was going to this church, and for some reason this church wanted to segregate women activities from uh, men activities. And I've always had a little bit of a problem connecting to women. I just didn't feel, I felt like there was this this square hole, and I was kind of a weird octagonal shape that didn't quite fit into their roles, and I just didn't get it. And so we always had these women activities that we'd go to. And I remember people even saying, you know what, we're not going to socialize because that's not our role. Our role is to be completely spiritual. So when we come together, we're going to praise and worship and then we're just going to soak. Okay, so that's fun maybe once. But um, I'm not that type of person. I'm not necessarily a real serious person. I need to 
sit down and just be stupid with people. I mean, just have stupid conversations and, you know, just kind of feel like I have an avenue to be myself. Not to say that I'm stupid. That's not what I'm saying. I just like stupid conversation. Um, but we would go with um, this this women's group, and every week it was meet, praise and worship, soak. Meet, praise and worship, soak. And I hated it. I couldn't stand it. One, because I can't sit still. I think when I was in fourth grade, they wanted to test me for um, problems that I had focusing and sitting still. And uh, they wanted me to put in put me in pod five. It's no longer called pod five, thank God. But, you know, it was this special little room for people that couldn't focus. I have a problem with that in the first place. But then I sit there and I'm looking around and all these women look so accomplished and so full of God. And I'm feeling shame because I don't want to be here. I'd rather be sitting with my friends at work talking about who knows what. And I kept thinking, what is wrong with me that I don't want to go and soak and praise and worship and and make 100% of my focus on the study of God? What I'm finding out is I want it because I've always desired connection. I've always wanted to connect with people on a real level, not on a spiritual level, but on a, a real level. So what happened to me is I started feeling shameful about my feelings of going to these women things And because of shame will bring disconnection because shame is actually the fear of rejection. And I have a huge fear of rejection. So when you feel shame about something, you don't want to tell anybody about that shame, because if you tell someone that you feel bad about that, then they're going to reject you. So you completely back away from people because you don't want them to see it. God forbid they figure it out. Right. And realize I'm really a loser. So you start disconnecting from people. So here I was, I was in a church where I felt shame. They were doing activities that I couldn't relate to. And I had totally disconnected myself to a group that should have given me life and safety. Um, As I go through more stuff, though, I realize that what was going on with me is not unusual (laughs) for a lot of people. I was raised in church and I, well, let's... Let me remember that I have a PowerPoint here. I, um, we're all raised in different ways. And I hate doing this because at school we can always want to blame the parents. You know, you always want to look at your parents and blame the parents. Personally, I think if you're a teacher that goes out and you teach or a counselor that goes out and, and, and works with kids, if you tend to always want to blame the parents, you're going to burn yourself out. Because, one, you can't control the parents. And really, in a lot of cases, it's more society's fault. It's, it's our culture's fault in some ways that causes some of the problems that we have here today. But what I'm learning is we all learn to have a sense of self. So we either have a very well-developed sense of self or we may not have a well-developed sense of self. But how we see ourselves is how we see the world. I really loved Aaron's teaching about how God's not mad at us. That was amazing to me because I was raised where, well, I don't know if I was raised this way, but I know a lot of my Christian um, thinking when I was an adult and some of the things that I latched onto 
was you have to diminish yourself in order to let God come in and take control. And it was all off of the sacrifice yourself like Jesus did and die to yourself so that God can come in or Jesus can come in, take control. And what you find is that's not really developing a sense of self much because what you're doing is you're erasing your sense of self and, uh, and allowing really something that's unnatural because I truly believe that Jesus wants to be a partner with you and he wants to use your personality to connect to others, not diminish who you are so that they can see a diminished, shallow person that's trying to be spiritual. Does that make sense? So I started thinking about sense of self and how I've been thinking about Christianity and how this is just not... Um, helpful with connection to other people. And, and it was from what I was believing with Christianity. When I was getting my master's degree in counseling, I had to take uh, a class in family systems. And keep in mind, I did online classes, which is really kind of funny because I did online classes for math because I had to learn how to teach 7th and 8th graders math. So I did it all online. And I was teaching, and I don't know if any of you guys are math people, but they give you these words, but they don't tell you audio, audio, how they hear, right? So I was telling kids that they were going to learn about a, a parabola. And I was talking about a parabola or a, a multiple. I can't even remember what I was saying about multiplicative. I was saying multiplicative. And I had a math teacher come in and she's like, do you even know math? And I'm like, yeah, I've got the concepts. Why? Well, it's not a parabola. It's a parabola. And it's multiplicative, it's not multi-whatever I was saying, multi, I, I don't know what it was. But anyway, keep in mind, some of my online counseling was online, so we had to learn about Murray Bowen, and I think that's how you say his name, but if I say it wrong, that's why. Um, but basically, he focuses on family systems and the, be, the ability to think and be a person within a family system. So if we want, I don't know if many of you guys know what a Rube Goldberg machine is. Probably you do. You just never knew it was called that because I didn't until last year. But most of us, when we were younger, played mousetrap, right? Where you have to put the whole thing together. And if you drop this ball, it'll come down. It'll hit some paddles, go down some chutes, go around a slide into a bathtub. I think there was a bathtub. Finally, at the end, it caused this cage to come down over the mouse. Correct? Well, that's a system. And what he's talking about in family system is how do you function inside a system to create the system in which we live? So if I'm in the mousetrap game and I'm part of that system and I am a bathtub or a chute that's not working well, that system's going to be dysfunctional. And that's what we studied. So the idea is that we grow up with a sense of self. Some of us have well-developed self. Some of us do not have uh, well-developed self. And how we operate in the system depends on whether we're functional or not functional. So I started doing some marriage counseling here at the church. And one thing I decided I was going to do just personally is I was not going to meet with individual people within the married couple because it really is the system that they produce 
that brings life to the people around them. So when you get married, you actually create a system. You don't operate within yourself. You operate within what you call, you know, what you're going to do as a couple. One thing I found out is if you have an underdeveloped sense of self, then you feel powerless. So I'm going to put you in a very powerless feeling because I felt it this morning. I am, I'm normally on time, but I'm not on time because what I do at home is efficient. I, that is not an efficient process for me. What makes me on time is going 90 miles an hour down Highway 50, right? Because you know you're going to be late, so you're going to make it up in time. And I don't know how many of you have had it, been at that intersection on Purcell and Highway 50, but my goodness, those lights are so, they last forever, So nothing is more powerless than you sitting in Highway 50, late to work. You've already gone 90 miles an hour down to get to Highway 50 in Purcell, and you have to sit there at that light and wait for the red light to turn, to turn green. There's nothing you can do to get the red light to go faster into green, and you're just sitting there powerless. Do you know that feeling? (laughs) Yesterday I was late getting to my son's dance recital, and I had, I had one of his pieces of costume, and it was dance number eight for his, for his recital. And I had to go to Walmart to get a cooler. So I'm running into Walmart, I grab a cooler, I get to the checkout, and how, how about this perilous feeling, trying to figure out which lane to go into, right? So you're here looking at the lane, you're like, uh... Uh, I think this lane will be quicker, and then you get in, and they, they have a price check or something, and so you're thinking, do I get out of line and get into a different line? It's this whole dilemma, and nothing is more powerless, powerless than when you're sitting in the middle of a line. You've got people behind you. You've got someone in front of you, and you have the checkout person having a conversation as they're bleeping something by, and they're talking about, I don't know, the world's problems, and you're thinking, lady... We don't need to discuss the world's problems now. I have got to go. But yet I want to be nice. I don't want to be a bully and ugly. Very powerless feeling, right? So all of us experience powerless in our life in one point or another. But if we feel totally powerless, there's some things, if we have a low sense of self, there's things we tend to do to make up that power. So we become, this is my powerless guy, we become a... um, consumer of people so we see people who have power and we want that power so we're going to consume their hap- their power so if we see someone that's happy we don't feel happy i'm going to hang out with you because i'm going to take your happy so we tend to want to align ourselves this is one way by either taking what they have through domination or manipulation so we'll we'll be with someone and we'll dominate them to be happy It's your job to make me happy, and I'm going to dominate and manipulate you so that you make me happy. That's one way. Another way is to be a chameleon. So I'm going to follow everything that you say because you hold my happiness in my hands, and so I'm going to believe like you, think like you, talk like you, be you so that I can be happy like you. So there's two responses to that. That in some way is how codependency starts. Because you have two powerless people in a relationship. One wants to dominate. The other wants to be a chameleon. So you have, that works, right? If I can dominate you, you're going to acquiesce. So that would be a great idea. The problem is they're powerless, so they're not happy. 
So the, the powerless person that's acquiescing gets angry at the dominant person because they're not happy, so I'm going to be passive-aggressive. Person that's powerless, that's not, that dominating, he's a, or she is unhappy, so I'm going to be angry at you for being unhappy, and then we don't have connection. We have disconnection during that time because we're powerless. This operates in a system. <laughs> what I see in classes is a class, even in school, uh, can have a personality or a group or a family or a couple. You can have a personality as a system. You are operating as one entity. So as a church, we could be operating as one entity, and we could be operating as a powerless church or a powerful church. If we're a powerless church, we're going to be the type of church that's going to want to dominate, control. Uh, don't argue with me. We've got the right word. We've, we've got the right doctrine. Uh, the Bible is infallible. How we interpret it is infallible. You could have people entering that church that are chameleons that say, I'm going to believe just like this church. I'm not going to question the pastor. I'm not going to, uh, we're not going to have healthy discussion. We're going to believe exactly like we're going to believe. Um, consider the conversations we've had about the rapture. Isn't that a good example? We'll talk about the rapture and people will go nuts in the church. Because one, I feel powerless and I've got to believe like you. And so if you don't believe like me, then I'm going to be angry that you don't believe like me and we're going to have conflict. We can't have healthy discussion. Or I'm going to dominate you. You're going to believe like me. You've got to have the doctrine that I believe because if you believe like me, I feel powerful. Does that make sense as a a system? So as a system and as people, with the label of Christian on us, we have the keys keys to the kingdom, correct? So we have, in the secular world, people that have a very well-developed sense and people that don't have well-developed sense, just like we have in the Christian church, people with well-developed senses, self, and people with undeveloped self, right? But we have the keys of the kingdom, here, so consider this. We are a church with an underdeveloped sense of self that feels powerless, but we have the keys, but we're not going to give you the keys because we don't know we have the power and we're going to dominate and control you and it turns into this big conflict that we see socially or community, right? So let me give you an example of this. So I'm going to go back to Saul and Jonathan, and this is in 1 Samuel 14:24 through 48. So I'm going to give you some background. This is when Saul's sitting there um, with his limited number of soldiers, and he's looking at all the Philistines that are gathering around below. And he's freaking out because the Philistines are very mighty. They've got lots of soldiers. He's got a limited number. And he was told to wait on Samuel, the prophet, to come and do a sacrifice and bless his battle. So you can imagine, you've got your small army getting really nervous, feeling very powerless, wanting to run, and you're waiting on someone who's late. I don't know about you, but if I'm waiting on someone and I know the job's got to be done, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to wait on that person because... You know, I've got too much of my self-esteem riding into how good of a leader I am, and I'm not going to wait, and, and that's exactly what Saul did. He went ahead and did the sacrifice, but in the meantime, Jonathan, his son, sneaks away from camp. 
he goes up on the high ground. He looks down at all of the Philistines and he says, you know what, God, I think we can do this. And it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer. And he says, all right, God, if you're with me, say the word and I'll go. Well, he gets the right cues. He goes down. The Philistine army becomes disoriented because they can't figure out why two guys are just coming down to kick their butt, which they're disoriented. So they get disoriented. Samuel's done the sacrifice. He looks down. He sees something is going on with the Philistines, and they look disoriented. And he takes his troops, and they go, and they win the battle. After that, however, Samuel comes, and he chews Saul out for not minding or doing the right legalistic sacrifice before the battle and tells him he's not fit to lead. Haven't we had people do that? (laughs) You're not fit for the job. You're not fit for where you're at. So Samuel is in a very powerless position at this point. So he tells his his troops, his army. Now, remember, they fought all day and he tells them, You're having to make an oath to me that you will not eat anything of the spoils. You won't eat anything tonight. And what I believe he was trying to do is he was trying to make up for his legalistic mistake with the sacrifice with another spiritual legalistic domineering act. So he was saying, "Okay, we screwed up, but we're going to fast now. We're going to make it right with God. We're going to follow these guidelines. We're going to not eat and then everything will be fine, and we'll fix it legally. So he's going to dominate his, he's going to blame his troops for one thing, because they were the ones that were getting nervous, and I'm the one that got nervous because they were nervous, so I did the sacrifice. Don't we do that sometimes? When we feel shame, we point blame at other people. And so we're going to all make it right. We're going to do a legal process of fasting so that uh, God's happy with us again. Basically, I think is what was going on. So here comes Jonathan. And I I like Jonathan because I think he's like kind of socially. I mean, he's he just doesn't know what's going on at this point. So he walks in. He's got a staff. And uh, the thing that's really funny about the story is you've got Saul telling his people and dominating and saying, you can't eat tonight. And then walks them right into a forest with all this dripping honey. You know, you've got to think about that. I think what that is, is God wanted to bless the people and brought that dripping honey. And Saul was keeping these people from the blessing through his domineering, powerless state. So you have Jonathan coming in. He's got his rod and he sees the honey. He wasn't there when Saul made the oath. But he grabs the staff or his rod and he puts honey on it. And it says he ate the honey and his eyes brightened. And the people are like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That's not going to make Saul happy. So later on in the chapter, Saul hears that someone took honey and he's ticked off. He's trying to figure out who did it. So they do all these weird um, gambling things to figure out who did it. So it's kind of like what I would do as a teacher in middle school when I'm trying to figure out who put the gum on the floor, you know. Um, you know, Well, okay, write a name down. If you did it, put it in. You know, it's weird. So they find out that Jonathan did it, and that would cause death because you don't defy the king. But the people came and saved Jonathan. They aligned themselves with someone who was willing, who was in a powerful state, wanting to bless the people. They lined with him before they would line with the king, who was in a powerless state and, um, and wanted to domineer and, and control the people. So is it possible 
that today as a Christian system, as a Christian church system, I am not talking about our church because I do believe that our church is unique and not what I'm talking about. But is it possible as a Christian system, we are feeling feeling powerless in today's world. And so our tactics are to dominate and manipulate those people around us. One, you must believe the way we believe or we're going to be mad at you and we are going to deny you um, access to the kingdoms of heaven. Fine, we'll just leave you alone. We're going to be raptured up and leave you guys behind anyway, right? Or are we maybe just finding unity within our own church just to feel safe and not willing to have an honest discord with people in the church on what's needed for the community or maybe what we're doing that could be better. We could be doing either way. One thing, one example I have of this is when I went to the University of Denver, I decided I was going to connect with Campus Crusade, which is a, is a good group, right? Back in the 80s, it was a good group. So I um, went to Campus Crusade and never really connected with some of the Campus Crusade people. And this is why. I had a Jewish roommate who was an a Orthodox Jew. And I had a friend who was a Catholic, was a pretty uh, strong Catholic. And some of the people from Campus Crusade would come over and pray with me and act really weird when my Jewish roommate came. It's almost like they were doing something wrong and embarrassed or they didn't know how to act. And they would say things um, trying to get them to convert to their way of thinking. But it was just really awkward. And um, so I just it was just too embarrassing, really, to be uh, a roommate with this with this Jewish woman and a, a Catholic person and have to excuse my campus crusade buddies. It was just, it was something I didn't know how to rectify. And I ended up finding a little bit more connection with my Jewish roommate and my Catholic friend than I did with my campus crusade friends. So I'm sitting eating in the cafeteria at the college and these people from campus crusade come up to me. And they said, we want to know your opinion. I'm pretty impressed because it's like, wow, you guys want to know my opinion? That's kind of cool. And they were asking me if a um, speaker that they wanted to bring in town would be appropriate. I said, well, yeah. They said, well, we wanted to ask you because really you're from the other side. And it really bothered me that they saw me as different. Um, So sometimes I think we end up putting a wall in front of Jesus as Christians to people that actually need Jesus. So another example I have of this is in Luke. Um, it's the story about Jack, uh, Zacchaeus. So it's Luke 19, 1 through 10. Most of you guys know the story about Zacchaeus because we sing the song about Zacchaeus going into this tree, right? So it's only 10 verses. And when Jesus is entering Jericho, he sees a man, and his name is Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. And so he's coming into town, and Zacchaeus wants to seek Jesus. But the Bible says he was short of structure. And I'm a literature teacher, so when I see something like that, I'm thinking, that's got to be put in there for some reason. So I spent like probably a week and a half trying to figure out why Zacchaeus was short. 
you know, that had to be a reason why Zacchaeus is short. Maybe he was just short. I mean, you know, maybe Jesus was short. Maybe he just needed to get... I went into this whole thing. It, it doesn't matter. Zacchaeus was short and he climbed in a tree, right? So he climbed in a tree to see Jesus. Um, and Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the tree and he looked up at him and saw him and said to him, um, come down, I'm, I want to go to your house to eat. And Z, Zacchaeus came down and they were... Um, heading to eat. Um, but when the crowd saw that Jesus asked Zacchaeus to come and eat with him, they were angry. Here's the, here Jesus wants to eat with the chief tax collectors. Back then, the tax collectors, they were kind of like your um, your bullies on the street, they, especially if you're the chief. It's like if you're the chief tax collector, then you get a bunch of other bullies to go and collect taxes and then you use extortion and you you tell people really the tax is 10, but you're going to take 15 from the people and you're going to skim off the top. It was really not a notable profession. I can think of other professions today, but I'm not going to say what I think those could be like. But they couldn't believe that Jesus would want to hang out with someone that was considered of a, a, a cheat uh, someone that was considered or labeled to be uh, an undesirable in society. So if you read on, Zacchaeus uh, says to, to Jesus, and if you read it in the New King James Version, the Greek verbs in there are different than they are in the NIV. And, and when I did some study, it said that the Greeks were at, the Greek, the King James was actually closer to what the Greek verb meaning is, but it's more of a present ongoing tense. So when Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by um, false accusation, I restore it for fourfold. In the past, and how I've taught it to the kids is this is repentance, where Zacchaeus realizes that he's been cheating people and then he's going to give all the money back. But if you do the math, it doesn't work. I don't I think what he's saying to Jesus is he's trying to vindicate himself. He's trying to say, yeah, I'm a chief tax collector, but I don't cheat the people. I give if I find out I'm cheating the people, I give it back, which makes me wonder if. And when I was reading, there's another thought that maybe he had experienced John the Baptist had already repented, was living a life, a good life. But the people were not willing to give him a chance because they had labeled him as a chief tax collector and they were not allowing him access to Jesus because of that. So he had to climb a tree in order to see Jesus because the people were in the way. How many times do you think we do that today? Is it possible our Christian church today as a system stands in the way? Oops, I've got stands in the way of uh, of people trying to seek Jesus. Is it possible that our ideas of what the secular world and their questions about our Christian faith is too threatening to powerless people? And so we're standing in the way and not giving them the kings of heaven or the kings of the kingdom because we're judging them. It's kind of like... Um, I said this in the first service, and you kind of have to be a middle school reading teacher to, to get this, but um, kind of in Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Have you guys ever seen Diary of a Wimpy Kid? It's kind of like the stinky cheese touch, right? We're out on the playground. No one wants to touch the stinky cheese because then they get the cooties. 
And so everybody hates the person that gets the stinky cheese touch. So if you touch the stinky cheese, then you are being uh, disconnected from society because you have the cooties of the stinky cheese. I think sometimes we look at people in our community as having the stinky cheese touch. They've touched the world too much. They've been too much in the world that they are frightening to us. So we don't want to approach them because we're sitting in a powerless position. We are so, and so what we do is we give them a whole bunch of rules that they must abide by. And if they don't abide by the rules, we're going to break fellowship with them and maybe pray for them. Maybe we're not like Jonathan who comes to them with a rod full of honey, not worrying that touching them is going to cause us death. But we want to brighten their eyes through the blessing that we can be to them. So I think we are entering an era where we can have conversations with people in the secular world and have good, honest discourse without feeling like we're giving away our values, like we're giving away our beliefs because we have a stronger sense of self as a church and and who we stand for completely. Um. Let's see. I wanted to do this. There are some other things I was thinking, and that is this. <laughs> so I, I, I was, I kept thinking when I was preparing for this is I, I really wanted to look at what Jesus actually said. What did Jesus say? And I was looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and I've hated. I have to really admit, I hate the Sermon on the Mount. I've always hated it. I'm going to be really honest. It's a shameful thing to hate something that Jesus said. And I never wanted to admit that I hated the Sermon on the Mount because, you know what, my whole life I've struggled with victims. I'm, but I found out it's, it's a little different that I'm learning. I struggled with victims because, really, I'm a bully. I really am a bully. I'm like one of those closet bullies that you don't really know is coming. But I'm actually, I've been a bully. I don't like weak people. If I see weak people, I'm going to smash them in the carpet and teach them a lesson. Because, God forsaken, you need to learn to be so, not so weak. So in order not to be so weak, we're just going to pound you into the earth until you become strong, right? But I'm starting to believe that that is a powerless position to come from. I don't like victims because I felt powerless myself. So when I read... The Beatitudes about if someone hits you in the cheek, what? You're going to turn your other cheek? Are you kidding me? No way. I'm not going to turn my other cheek and let someone reject me again, give me those same terrible feelings that I got when I first got rejected. I'm going to hit them back. You don't do that. That's like a doormat. Why would you do that? And so I hated those verses. I just, you know, it was almost like ripping them out of the Bible and acting like they don't exist. I don't know if you've ever done that. You'll go through the Beatitudes. So when I taught kids, I'm like, oh, let's do this. But we're not going to hit the Beatitudes because that one just takes me off. Right? You ever been there? So I started thinking about this and I thought, um, you know what? I'm going to start reading about what Jesus had to say about the Sermon on the Mount in a powerful stance. What would it feel like if it didn't matter to me if they hit me? If they hit me on the cheek and I have a good sense of self and realize that this is not a rejection because I like myself anyway and God loves me, why would I care if they hit the other cheek? Does that make sense? Before I cared because that was rejection to me. 
That was something that caused me to feel shame because I must have done something wrong. And so therefore, I'm going to step aside or I'm going to hit you back. I'm either going to dominate or acquiesce, whichever. And I hated the acquiesce. Domination is my key thing. If I feel powerless, I'm going to dominate every single time. And I have to catch myself doing that because I'm like, what am I trying to do here? (laughs) Am I trying to dominate? I don't know if you guys have ever had this, and I don't know if I've really done this, but you're in the job and you want someone else's job, so you're going to highlight their mistakes so you could have their job. There's lots of things we do that are dominating that are different. Maybe I have done that. Maybe that came to mind. Um, so I was, ta- I was thinking about this church that I went to a while back, this women's group that came in and they soaked and they praised, and I thought, you know, I think what was going on here is I was with powerless people. They did not know how to connect, and they wanted to make themselves look like very uh, Christian, spiritual people by meeting and praising and soaking, because then they didn't have to have real conversation with real discussion, with real challenges. Because really, through conversation, don't we get challenged with our beliefs? And sometimes we'll bend and say, ooh, never thought about that. That sounds like a, interesting. Let me go study that through. Or sometimes we're like, you know, you believe that. I believe something differently, and I'm okay with that. I think sometimes we're afraid to have those because we feel powerless. And I'm wondering if that wasn't what was going on in that church at that time. But I'm also looking at Pueblo and what we have today. We have a community, I think, and, you know, people like to highlight, especially our state, they like to highlight about Pueblo and say Pueblo is like the stepchild of the state. And we've got all these issues and it's it's out of control. Our district is not performing. You know, it seems like we get a lot of bad press and maybe we deserve it. I don't think so, but maybe we do. But isn't that an awesome opportunity? Because when you think about that drop that goes in the water, when you think about this small group that we have today, when you think about the hearts that we have here that are building a sense of self with Aaron's teachings about um, how God loves us, he's not mad at us, we don't have to pay a price. We are forming a foundation, I think, that is a small drop that's going to make a big ripple in a town that needs it the most. When I, when I work in school, when I look at school and when I look at some of the kids that we have and I see some of the desperate needs that we have for some of these kids, I'm going to pick the best teachers to meet those needs. I am not going to pick a powerless teacher to go in and try to shape a kid up. I'm going to pick a powerful teacher that's going to put up with the students, that's not going to try to dominate a student or control a student, but allow to just pull those strengths out of a student because they're a powerful person and they can call strength to strength. How awesome is it to think that we've got a small community here that are powerful, that can be the best um, influence, best um, thing for a community that we have here. If we approach our community in a powerful state, we're willing to have conversations Difficult conversations with people who may have different ideas. We're not going to be able to, we're not going to be afraid to touch the person with the stinky cheese touch. We're going to be able to look at that person in the eye and give them honey like Jonathan gave to the the army that, or he didn't give it to him, but he could have given to the army. 
We're going to be able to do that. When you think about the Rube Goldberg machine, you know, you look at how that works. And if you look at a clock, you've got those cogs in the clock where you've got one gear that that affects another gear. And one thing that I think is intriguing about a system is if you change one piece of that system, the rest of the functioning of the system has to alter in order for it to function correctly. So if I change the speed of one gear, this other gear is going to have to go just as fast to keep up, which causes the other gears to keep up. If I change something in the Rube Goldberg machine, if I move a chute over, I'm going to have to move the rest of the mechanics over so that it works. So in order to change a system, because we look at our Christian system, and it's huge. It's being built over the last 2,000 years. But as a small group, if we were to just change just a little bit of the functioning inside of a huge system, don't all the other pieces have to follow along? So that's a powerful state, and I think we can do that today. I think if we, if we just start moving towards a different direction, engaging in conversation, being willing to um, realize that I'm powerless and I need to get a better sense of self by realizing that God loves me, by realizing that when I operate in today's society, I'm not operating as Jesus only. I'm operating as Jackie, my personality, my faults, my quirkiness, along with Jesus, because Jesus is going to use some of my quirkiness and my faults to reach people. He's going to use my personality. I don't have to erase myself so that God, Jesus can come in and be perfect. Who want, Have you ever had to hang out with a perfect person? It's annoying. I don't know about you, but it's like, really? Seriously, you have already thought about that? Oh, yes, of course. I know you already had that idea. Isn't that kind of annoying? Isn't it more interesting? My favorite kids to teach were those kids that were creating Disneyland inside of their desk. You know, they had paper clips and little pieces of paper, and they were making little noises. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting mind. I want to know more about that mind. I think people are interesting. People are unique We need to keep that uniqueness and that interesting part about ourselves and love it, not reject it. I'm socially awkward. I think I kind of like that. I I think I'd like to move a little bit away from it. But at this point, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the, the parts of me that I have rejected in the past, which gives me more confidence to be in a social setting with people and not have to put a mask on. Before I had to hike myself up, before I went to a party, I'd be like, okay, we're going to put this mask on and we're going we're gonna to hype myself up. I'm going to go up and I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to do it. And we have to give ourselves this coach. But that's because I was in a perilous position. Now that I understand that I'm just quirky and sometimes weird and maybe funny sometimes, and I like all those parts about me, and when I go to a room, I really don't feel pressured to talk to people because my self-esteem is not on whether how many people I talk to or whether they smile at me or like me or not like me. I feel so much more comfortable and actually then it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to admit, when I was in college, the big thing for me to do was I felt comfortable going out and socializing if I could have uh, two or three beers, right? Because I felt comfortable after drinking a little bit. And I think that's why we have so many adult uh, social activities that involve alcohol, because it takes down those barriers. 
But it's a false way to remove those. So how cool is it when you start liking all parts of yourself where you can go into a room and you don't have to have liquid courage to go up to someone and say, I value you. I want to connect with you. I want to meet with you. You're different. I want to discuss with you without getting angry. How cool is that? Right. And I think that's where we're heading as this church and as individuals. And I think actually that's where our culture is heading when you see some of the stuff that's on the Internet. So I'm excited and I'm going to start looking at the Bible through a more powerful stance than a powerless stance. Um, So here's the deal. Oh, I forgot to bring what we need to do is we need to break down the wall between Christians and Jesus. We need to actually be with Jesus as part of what uh, people from society meet. So before, I think a lot of times what happens is they meet this wall that we've made around ourselves as a Christian society where they're unable to see Jesus because we've put up this front because we feel powerless And I think if we realize that we're powerful and we're side by side with Jesus, who's powerful also, that we then break down those walls and allow people to have an authentic experience with Jesus and with connecting with other people. And they're going to have to see that demonstrated as a church when they come in that door and they see that we're willing to connect. We're willing to look at them in the eye and say, you know, that we're happy for them to be here. And guess what? I'm imperfect. I'm just like you, but we're we're in this together, and Jesus is by my side. But let me introduce you to my friend, Jesus here, who we hold the keys to heaven, so that or the keys to the kingdom, so we can make your life, we can enhance you, we can put your life on supercharge, right? Everybody likes the fast car that's got the supercharge and all the extra packages to it. Well, think about that. We can give them the life. We can make anybody can go out there and make someone self, make them their self, build up their self, give them good resiliency. Anybody can do that. But what we do is we not only provide that, we can provide the supercharge with Jesus, right? So we can say, you know, you can have the standard package. The world gives you the standard package. But uh, guess what? We not only can give you the standard package, but we can supercharge it for free. And this is Jesus, and I want to bring this to you because this is like a supercharged package. How many people would turn that down if it's authentic? I'm not going to give you one of those. I've noticed in you've got those nice-looking muscle cars, right, with like a, a really, what is it, a four-cylinder engine. So you get in, you think you're going to really take off, and you're like, you're trying to merge on the freeway. You're like, man, this is supposed to be a cool looking car, but it's a wimp, right? That's what the world is offering to people. But what we want to do is we want to offer authentic. If we say our car is supercharged, it's going to be supercharged. And I'm going to show you how to drive it, right? So um, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what's coming up and Aaron getting back and seeing what he's got next.